Welcome to today's webinar compiled and produced by the team at biznews.com. All of our webinars are interactive. We encourage you to pose questions to our guests. The more challenging, the better. And the earlier you get the questions in, the better the chance of having them answered. The recording of this webinar will be available later today on the biznews.com channel on YouTube. Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's Business Finance Friday webinar. Our guests today are Jonathan Boerter from Netto Invest in Cape Town and Dawn Riddler from Karenga Wealth Ecology in Johannesburg. So two independent advisors here to answer your questions. So welcome, Dawn, and welcome, Jonathan. Thanks, Jackie. Hi, everyone. And welcome to everybody who's joined the webinar. Please do start getting your questions into the chat box uh, that you can see next to you, Stu, I wonder if you just want to flag up and just check to make sure everybody can pop their questions in the box there. Thanks, Jax. Welcome, John and, and Dawn. Um, just quickly, if you can hear Jax, or hear my voice, so I'm talking now, and see Jackie, Jonathan and Dawn on screen with a presentation, the little half five button on the control panel. If you can just click that, then at least we know we're coming through loud and clear. Uh, there we go, Jax, I've got one or two coming through. That's good news, always good to see. And as Jack's mentioned, there's little questions drop down on the panel on the right-hand side of your screen. If you plop them in there, Jackson, pass them on. But uh, as said, in early, us time seems to run very quickly in these webinars. Thanks, Jax. Thank you. So before we get going with the questions, uh, I first want to tell you a bit more about our panelists. So Jonathan Boerter has a BCom, and as I mentioned, he's with Netto Invest in Cape Town. And he says he has a holistic approach to financial planning. Jonathan, perhaps you could briefly sketch out what does holistic mean in this context? We often hear that financial advisors have this holistic approach. What does that entail? Yeah, so thanks, Jackie. So hi to all the listeners out there. And, and yeah, what holistic financial planning involves, it means just looking at your overall sort of financial planning picture and not just looking at one piece of the sort of financial planning puzzle in isolation. So it's it's just that broad overall view of financial planning, looking at everything from investments to estate planning um, to insurance if you need it. So it's just that overall view of financial planning. Thank you. And then Dawn, you also have this uh, approach to financial planning and you bring in this emphasis on ecology. Perhaps you could just, for our attendees who aren't familiar with your process, just sketch out how your approach differs from other financial advisors and wealth managers. Um, you know, like Jonathan, I'd also take um, a holistic approach and um, I just, my background is in botany and ecology and zoology and I just found that by using um, sort of what I learned as a botanist and as an ecologist and bringing it to the financial field where you're talking about a system where they're all interrelated, um, that it, it it's easier for a client to actually understand the concepts when it, it's made, you know, when I use analogies with things that they're perhaps more familiar with from, 
you know, being in a bush or, you know, being in a garden or things like that. And we heard earlier you've got a very interesting, uh, had a very interesting start to your career teaching medical students and you've also lived in Madagascar and all sorts of places. So, you know, a lot about botany. How did you move to the financial side of things? To, to put it very bluntly, I knew I was never going to make enough money as a botanist. <laughs> so um, sort of one year into, into my doctorate, um, I decided to do an MBA. Um, so so that's the long and short of it. it. It was purely fiscal. Okay, thank you. And Jonathan, why did you decide to become a financial advisor? Yeah, this is the same the sort of story. Yeah, no, I enjoyed working with, with people. So I, I started out doing auditing um, and I found that I, I preferred to sit with people and try and help them achieve their sort of financial goals and objectives as opposed to, you know, doing auditing in the background, ticking boxes. So I just found it was a personality thing for me. I just found I rather preferred to uh, work with people as opposed to crunching numbers in the background. Okay. And uh, today we're going to be talking about Bitcoin and also uh, the fund performance in South Africa. And so, Jonathan, you, you sent in a few slides. Perhaps we can just talk through those briefly before we move on to some of the points that Dawn wanted to make, and then we'll take the questions. So, yeah, Jonathan, perhaps you, if you just want to talk through these details, and I'll just move the slides for you. Great. Thanks very much. Yeah, so I think it's always important when we're talking about assessing sort of what the performance has been uh, with regards to the local asset managers, you know, it's, it's important when we, we're having a discussion about local asset managers, it's important to just bear in mind that, you know, a lot of the portfolios that we construct um, have a lot of offshore uh, within the portfolio. So today we're going to sort of chat about the local asset managers, but just with the caveat that, you know, we, we still like the offshore exposure and we still think it's a good thing to have within the portfolios. But today we're going to have sort of a focus on the local asset managers and what they've done. So what I've just done is I've just thought we could start with just looking at, you know, what sort of the, what has the returns been uh, from the JSE over the last few periods. Um, so what I wanted to just highlight on this slide was just, you know, what the what the JSE has done over the last period. So if we look at it over the last year, the JSE, the all shares returned about 7% um, over, over one year. Um, sort of five-year returns, we're seeing about 6.5%. Um, so, so the returns on the local environment have been a bit sort of flat. They've been a bit narrow, um, and and yeah, it's it's been a difficult place for the asset managers to to operate in this local environment. Um, and that uh, on the fifth line over there, we've got this sort of MSCI World Index, which just shows you what the sort of international um, funds have done. The World Index has done over that same period. So you can see compared to the local all share. Uh, of 7%, the sort of MSCI has done about 20% over that same time period. So a uh, very difficult place for the asset managers to operate in this local environment. I see the exception is resources. Mm. Yeah, e exactly. So there's been a couple of places. So when we talk about the returns on the local environment, it's been a very narrow sort of a place to be. And what I mean by that is there's been some places where, so for example, if you've had exposure to NASPAS, as well as the resources sector, uh, so gold and platinum stocks, you've done you've done very well. So the asset managers that have had those exposures would have done really well. Um, if you've been exposed to the banking sector or the South African consumers in in the sense of the retailers, they've had a very difficult time over the last 
uh, five years or so. Uh, the financials sector over the last five years has given zero percent return over the last five years, which has been which has been a horrible place to be. Um, so yeah, and if we if we look at yeah that the, the sort of the top performers that next slide what I was just highlighting here is exactly that you know the top performers over the last one year and five years you can definitely see there's a theme there there's the, the mining stocks have done phenomenally well and um, so there's there's a different theme uh, where you'd want to be over the last couple of years. Thank you. And then the worst performers. Yeah, so again, that just talks to, you know, being such a narrow, sort of it's a tightrope that the asset managers are having to walk. And if you caught up, you know, if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, um, that's going to make a huge difference to what your portfolio returns have been. So, um, you know, in over the last five years, the worst sort of performers have been the, the tourism sector. You can see there the hotels, the gaming uh, and the property sector. So those have had a, had a horrible time over the last one and sort of five years. Um, there's also been the sort of the black swan events in terms of Sassel and Steinhoffs. Um, so, you know, if the asset managers have had exposure to those, those two um, stocks, they, they would have struggled with their, with their local performance over those periods. Hmm. And then the local asset managers, how have they done? Yeah, so what what I've done here is I've just tried to show, so I've kept it anonymous. I haven't, I haven't labeled the, the asset managers. Uh, purely because we, <laughs> we, I can give you that info. We, I've got it if, if your listeners want it. Um, we just thought uh, we, we like the people at Biz News and we don't want you to get hate mail after this. So I've just kept it anonymous. Um, but yeah, so what we're looking at there is the asset managers, just four top asset managers in the country. Um, what have they done over the last one, three and five years? And you'll see that you know, the last year has been has been okay for some of the managers, returning, you know, close to 10%. Um, one of the managers has obviously lagged, one of the big managers in South Africa. Um, and over the last five years, the numbers have been, been very flat. Um, so the point of this slide, what I'm trying to illustrate here is just is to say, you know, when we're looking at returns, it's very difficult to know um, you know, what the performance has looked like. So often we, I use an analogy, being South Africans, we, we like sport um, to say, you know, the, the Springboks, for example, scored three tries. You know, what does that, what does that actually mean? Um, you need to benchmark that against something. So, you know, three tries, is that good or bad? Um, if you're playing against England and it's the Rugby World Cup final and they only scored one try, then that's great. Three tries is phenomenal. So when we're looking at the returns there over a one, three and five year period, what does seven and a half percent mean over five years? Is that good or is that bad? Um, and what we need to do is we need to benchmark that against certain uh, benchmarks in the industry. Um, and there's a number of them. I've just chosen a couple of them just to have a look at. And some of the benchmarks could be inflation, it could be cash, um, it could be benchmarking against what the all share index has done over those, those periods. Um, or you could benchmark your asset manager against a peer of other asset managers, which is that last benchmark there, the, uh, the multi-asset sort of high equity, equity benchmark. Um, and if we look at those benchmarks, what we can see then is over a one-year period, um, the, the average manager in South Africa, a high equity manager in South Africa, has done 5.7% over the last year. Um, and the other managers, those top four managers at the top, they've, they've all managed to, well, except for the one, have beaten um, the average of the asset managers over that time, same time period. 
um, and the same thing for five years. So it's just important when looking at returns to just benchmark it against something so that you can assess whether it's it's good or, or, or average performance. And just for people who aren't familiar with benchmarking, how do you assess this? This is quite a disappointing return, isn't it, when you consider these are the top asset managers in South Africa? This is the best yeah. they could do. They are paid to generate superior returns from assets, and that's all that they manage. So it does sort of lend the argument that maybe we should go for passive investing. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm glad, yeah, so I'm glad you mentioned that, Jackie, because one of those top four managers that I've got in there is is a passive uh, investment strategy, and it'll be impossible for you to actually, well, I mean, you could take a guess, but you wouldn't be able to pick from just looking at those, which one of those is the passive investment uh, versus the active. Um, so, yeah, the one of those managers is a passive investment, and you, you, you can't pick it, but... But one of the, but as you mentioned, that's important to look at that benchmarking against the long term, um, and to see, you know, what those asset managers have done over the last five years compared to inflation, for example. You know, they they they're barely keeping ahead of inflation. Uh, the elephant in the room is cash, obviously struggling against cash. Um, but yeah, so benchmarking is very important to assess performance. So, have you given up on local asset managers, then, Jonathan, at your firm? No, so it, that's that's a difficult question because what we you know so it's in, it's it's local asset managers have a place in a portfolio, um, in the sense of you know we end up having local asset managers in our sort of retirement portfolios, and that's that's due to the nature of the retirement annuity environment in South Africa. Um, so you know to be able to add to your retirement investments through work, you might end up having to have a provident fund or a pension fund uh, through work. And through that, you'll be forced to end up investing in local sort of asset managers due to the regulatory nature of, you know, retirement saving in South Africa. So we end up having clients building up retirement local portfolios in South Africa, uh, which ends up meaning that we end up with these asset managers um, in South Africa. So. You know, if if we we had a choice, we would say we we might lean towards the offshore uh, asset managers over the the local managers. Um, but in reality, we find that our that our clients end up building up uh, retirement investments in South Africa, which means they have exposure to the the local asset managers. And there's you know there's there's pros and cons to both of those sort of scenarios. You know, using retirement annuities and investments, you're getting a tax deduction on the on the money that's going into those investments. Um, which which is something that we can't overlook in terms of a, a part of the overall financial planning picture. Before we move on to Dawn, does that tax benefit actually help when the returns are so poor? Isn't it better to just look elsewhere for uh, opportunities to build wealth? Yeah, so I think it also depends on what sort of income bracket you're in. So, for example, if you're a high income owner at the 45% tax bracket, um, to walk away from a 45% tax deduction on your contributions into retirement annuity, um, I think you know it makes sense to to make use of those. Um, but perhaps if you're at the low end of the income bracket and you know getting an 18% deduction on contributions into retirement annuity, that that might not be as attractive as as the high income earners. Um, so yeah, it, it does depend. It is case specific to each individual client. 
Thank you, Jonathan. Dawn, what is your view on the local asset management environment? Are you, do you find any sort of outliers or, or do, you, do you look at a similar chart and think that this is really quite a disappointing set of affairs? Um, yeah, obviously, mostly what, what we do is um, we diversify asset classes because a lot of what we're talking about here is, is what's happening on the stock exchange. Um, and, you know, the sort of poor performance from a stock exchange is not new. You know, it's been around, as, as Jonathan knows, for, for coming on six, coming on, I think it's coming close to seven years now of this really lackluster performance, which, which starts to, it's no longer short term, it's hardly even medium term, it's now a long term problem. Um, and the only way to really get around it is, is diversification. One of the things that, that we do when it comes to um, picking um, assets in that stock um, area is, is we try and balance the fee with the, the performance. Um, and, you know, so at least get, um, and, and you can find, you know, um, very well performing uh, unit trusts in that sort of equity space or in that balance space and not necessarily have to pay the, you know, 2%, 1.9% that you're paying with some of the more popular, um, read advertised, read big buildings in Santon kind of asset managers. You can, you can get that kind of thing. You can, if you look and you know where to look, you can actually get really decent unit trusts at passive fees, right? Passive, uh, passive investing in this country isn't as cheap as we get it to overseas. You know, overseas, you know, you might pay one or two or three percentage of basis points. In this country, you're paying close to 30, 40. There's some exit, exit, exit fees and this kind of thing. But there are, you know, it, it's a matter of actually finding those sort of less popular, less advertised, but but good performing low low cost fees and blending them in, you know, in with other assets we we've been using a lot of fixed assets with just bonds and cash in our in our clients portfolios for a while now thank and you Dawn. Offshore, before we move you know maximizing the offshore before we move on to having a a, a quick chat about uh, blockchain and, and bitcoin there's been a lot in the news about alan gray it used to be the, the absolute darling of the asset management environment and uh, it seems that their performance fees are getting the better of them. Jonathan, do you look at that closely at all when you decide how to where to place your clients' funds? How do performance mm. fees factor in for you? Yeah, we, we need to look at performance fees very closely and, and as Dawn mentioned, fees are a very important part of constructing portfolios and we look at that very closely. Um, and yeah, Alan Gray have had a very tough time in terms of their, their local performance or performance in general um, you know as, as mentioned the the band is so narrow at the moment so if you've got exposure if you've had exposure to the Sassels and the Steinhoffs and the likes and you've missed the the mining resources and the nuts passes then you you're going to have a very difficult time in terms of trying to generate value for your clients and um, we do find that the, the the fees are coming under severe pressure and it's something that we look at very closely um, we also we also take into account that we look at uh, the difference between sort of um, retail uh, prices versus the sort of institutional prices, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, portfolio managers constructing a, a fund of fund um, versus going directly to an asset manager and using their sort of retail fund 
you can end up unlocking a bit of value there in terms of a cost saving for your clients if you make use of the sort of multi-manager fund-to-fund approaches. Don't they charge more though? Isn't that just another layer of fees, having a multi-manager in the middle? Um, so not not necessarily. Um, what what it allows the the sort of portfolio managers and the fund of funds to do again, you you correct. You need to you need to look at that closely and and make sure that you're making use of the correct sort of strategies. Um, but what we end up finding is that you know a portfolio manager that a well-costed portfolio manager can end up going to these retail companies like the Allen Grays and the Coronations and the 91s etc. and can go to them with a group of assets and get those retail funds at a, at a discount um, and be able to construct a portfolio at a slightly lower cost than going to those asset managers directly. Thank you. Um, Dawn, before we move on, just briefly, I know you've spoken about performance funds, uh, fees before and there seems to be a lot of uh, devil in the detail. On, superficially, it sounds like a good idea, a performance fee. If the fund does well, then the fund manager gets a bonus and if the fund doesn't do well, then somehow they don't benefit. But aren't these performance fees constructed in ways that are designed to benefit the asset manager regardless of how the performance turns out? You know, I, I think one of the things when, when you're looking at these popular funds that have uh, performance fees is to look and see what benchmark they're using. Um, and that is where they can quite frankly screw you over. Um, you know, if you don't read that small print and see at what point are they taking performance fees. If they're taking performance fees from round one of, of any return, and some of them do, um, you know that's seriously, seriously not a good idea. I I'm quite. I'm. I'm just not a fan of performance fees because it is people that are buying the the fund in the future that are getting the paying those fees, not the people that actually had advantage of it. So, um, for a whole bunch of reasons, I'm, and you know, when it when it comes to fund of funds, when when you get a you know, fund manager who puts together fund of funds to bring down the costs, awesome. But then they then go often. I'm not saying everybody, Jonathan, by any matter of means, but you you do get fund managers who then use that opportunity of getting the discount so that they can add their own little bit to it, right? Instead of passing those those savings on. I think that's really where you do need a, an advisor to help you, guide you mm. on those fees because they can be quite complex. Mm. So thank you yeah. for that. Before we take the questions, Dawn, uh, we've had a lot of questions in about how do you invest in blockchain and Bitcoin uh, and you mentioned that you get this question a lot from your clients and in fact you have a portion of funds invested uh, in that area. Perhaps you could briefly explain uh, what's happening in that space and why you've gone for a bit of a um, diversification with yeah. that. Um, we, we took the, the view, you know, me and the asset managers, um, that uh, Blockchain is becoming a lot more ubiquitous. You know, it is almost becoming pedestrian. It's 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 getting sort of traction as a you know as almost like a, a fiat currency. Look, it's a long way away from that. Make no mistake, right? But um, we just felt that with the depreciation in the dollar and probably continued depreciation in the dollar, you know, when when you're printing that much money in stim to stimulate the American economy, you're likely to see a continued depreciation in the dollar. 
Um, and that is one of the reasons that Bitcoin, you know, had a nice little uplift in the last couple of months. Look, it's come down again and, and, and that kind of thing. But our diversification in there is really um, hedging against dollar depreciation more than more than anything else. And, you know, obviously we, we put commodities in there also as another hedge against dollar depreciation because they're often linked. But the diversification is really small. You know, we're talking sort of 2% kind of thing. And the, the asset managers who are buying and selling, you know, in these these offshore um, um, portfolios have a level at which they buy and a, a level at which they sell. You know, they have a sweet spot um, and they're pre pretty disciplined at sticking to that. So, you know, if, if I've got clients that come to me here and say, oh, yeah, I want to put, you know, I want, you know, sense, you know, my friend mate, you know, is going to put a whole lot of money into Bitcoin. What shall I do? And, and I just say to them, this, if this is excess money, if this is money that, you know, you would have spent on, you know, like we, we talked about maybe going on a cruise and, and I can't go on a cruise or this is just, you know, entertainment money. Um, that you maybe would otherwise have gone to Monte Casino or something like that, then by all means, you know, I, I don't control that kind of consumption. If you want to have a flutter, because basically that's what it is, you know, who, who am I to say that, you know, but just make sure that it's excess money. It's money that you can afford to lose. And it also, with, with any stocks, or especially speculative stocks like that, it's it's a good idea for somebody to have a bit of discipline to say right i'm i'm buying it at thirty thousand or bought it at nine thousand i mean most of the bitcoin that is in our clients offshore portfolios are bought it at sort of nine ten thousand levels so obviously the concentration's gone up a bit is to say okay i bought it at thirty thousand um if it goes below x thousand i'm going to sell out if it goes above forty thousand i'm going to sell out right um it, it's managing your personal fear and greed um, and and that can be a huge learning curve, and not a lot of people get that right. You know, it's very really, very difficult when you've had a good run on something to sort of like now bail out. And so it. that's but, you know, it's, so that's it's, the Bitcoin. What about the blockchain mm -hmm. companies? Do you invest in those at all? Um, you know, blockchain, in my opinion, is going to be a game changer across so many different industries. Um, every day you read about new ways which this blockchain technology can be used over and above cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin cryptocurrency and their whole bunch of these crypto cryptocurrencies. When it comes to blockchain, which is a way of actually embedding the um, custodianship, the, the origins of, of money and this kind of thing, that, that once that is used and used properly, you you know, um, money laundering and all this kind of thing will become a thing of the past, right? I, I know that there are artists that are starting to embed blockchain in digital pictures and, and things like that, so it, to protect copyright, um, because, you know, once once that block has been put in place, you can't change it. So you can sort of lock the custody and the sort of chain of um, chain of custody or something. It's it's a brilliant, brilliant um, new invention. And they're only I think only scratching the surface Whether big, you know, I, I understand the appeal of Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin was put in was to democratize democratized currency you know the it's it's the banks you know and the, the fees and the forex fees are when you move money from one place to the next that the cryptocurrency gets around that quickly efficiently and and without fees right um so i mean i really understand that sort of democratization i mean it's it's not way different from the democratization that you're seeing with robin hood and the you know 
shenanigans that are going on there at the moment. But, um, you know, I, I, I think it will settle down, you know, but the, um, the, the problem is trust, is getting people to trust in it. Um, you know, and I, I think that is the biggest problem. I mean, but there again, you know, what currencies do you trust in, especially when you've got, you know, maybe a government or something printing money at a hell of a rate. I mean, I, I've got a billion rand Zim dollar note. Hmm? <laughs> what can you do with that? Nothing. <laughs> Not a lot. I think worth a couple of cents, I think. Yeah, but it's just cool. Right. But I mean, you know, so it's it's all very well to say, you know, oh, but, you know, normal currencies and dollars, they're, you know, backed by governments and this kind of thing. And look, the American government is printing money at a rate that we just don't understand at this point in time. You know, so, you know, it's it just lucky that they're so big that the dollar is so ubiquitous and, and everything else. But boy, are they printing money? Thank you, Dawn. Jonathan, do you buy Bitcoin? Uh, no, no, we don't. Um, so again, as as Dawn mentioned, we we separate the two between uh, Bitcoin and the blockchain technology. And and yeah, I mean, I think Bitcoin has got such a long way to go to be an accepted currency. And if it ever will, uh, you know, I have my doubts that it ever will because there's just so many sort of headwinds in terms of acceptance, in terms of legislation, and actually just being able to process transactions at an appropriate level to make it a day-to-day -day sort of a currency besides the volatility of the of the pricing so I think it's it's got its it's got its headwinds um, but in terms of a asset class um, you know Bitcoin seems to have sort of correlated itself with the likes of gold and silver um, and that's on the back of the the US dollar depreciation and the US just printing money uh, which means that there are some inflationary pressures per, potentially on the on the cards um, which has helped those sort of um, uh, sort of hedges against inflation, which gold was always typically the, the hedge against inflation, the sort of go-to currency or, or asset class. And um, now Bitcoin has, is, is part of that sort of peer group. Um, so, so I think, yeah, Bitcoin is just too volatile with too many headwinds for us to, to sort of make use of. Um, but the blockchain technology is very exciting. So, uh, in terms of blockchain technology, that's within the portfolios and a lot of um, clients will probably not even realize that they've got exposure to blockchain technology within their portfolios. Um, the likes of Amazon, IBM, um, you know, they're all developing MasterCard, they're all developing their blockchain technology within their companies. Um, so, so yeah, through, through those big sort of offshore stocks, you've got exposure to, to blockchain technology, which is quite exciting. Um, so yeah, we don't directly make use of it in our portfolios, and it's always quite funny when when I have meetings with clients. I always know that the they they always start the meeting with "Don't laugh, but," and then I know it's coming that they've they've bought some Bitcoin. Um, and often the theory of it and in practice always works quite different. So in in theory, it it could work. Uh, I mean, the, it has worked. The price has gone from a couple of cents to um, you know, 600,000 Rand, I think it hit just under 700,000 Rand at the peak. Um, so that's phenomenal returns. But in practice, what we find is our clients end up getting caught up in the hype uh, and then they end up buying at the peaks of these sort of, uh, you know, when the, when the, the media and the, and the hype is building, they end up getting in at the top and then the pullback inevitably comes and then they end up sitting with the, with these Bitcoin that they, that at a loss and they need to sort of hold it out and wait until, uh, the returns come back. 
So uh, they've come back a few times, haven't they? They've, the Bitcoin's bounced back a few times. So uh, yes, we've yeah. Had a, yeah. Well, thank you very much. Our first question is actually from Billy, and it's not strictly in a, a, a personal finance question, but he says, please can the panel tell us what energy resources blockchain uses? I believe that it requires a lot of energy and space, more so than conventional practice. Are there developers out there who are working on reducing the carbon footprint of blockchain? Dawn, would you like to take that question? Um, you know, uh, answering the second part first, it's exactly. quite interesting that, yeah, I'm, can you hear me? Can you hear me, Jackie? Yes. Yes. Okay. yes. Um, yes. Well, the, we lost you briefly, but I can hear you. Um, interestingly, um, there are Bitcoin miners in the, the States uh, that run off a, a solar grid. And uh, when there's high demand for electricity, they switch the bit mining, Bitcoin mining off and then, you know, use the energy when there isn't such a demand for, um, you know, for the energy on the grid, which, I, I you know, is, is quite interesting. But um, traditionally, obviously, it requires dirty, great big machines and a hell of a lot of electricity. Um, and as a result, a lot of the you find a lot of the miners in China, for example, um, where the um, where the uh, uh, energy and that that kind of thing subsidized, right? And I mean, it's very dirty energy. It's it, you know, so it, it it is a huge concern. But you know, the thing thing to to understand now is that you know, for every Bitcoin that is produced, um, is requiring more and more and more energy, which is why there's the concern. But there, you know, there's only 20 million Bitcoin out there, and we're already sitting at 18.5 million mm. right so you know theoretically it's capped but bitcoin is just code you know but the thing is that there's so much vested interest i mean it's only um something in 400 billion dollars i think it is about comma five percent of gd world gdp which is about where we are actually um mm. that is available in in bitcoin so it is capped it is supposed to be a finite a, a finite resource so you know it isn't quite as you know so um i i think even the sort of the the bitcoin miners that's why you you know you find them falling off the map they just you know the amount of uh, the amount that they have to pay for electricity just just doesn't pay them anymore to to produce bitcoin so you're going to find alternative people who can do it alternatively to find the the last two million hmm. jonathan do you have anything to add to that yeah, I think, yeah, not not much. I mean, Dawn hit the nail on the head. It's very sort of, the, if you're not using solar, it's a very dirty sort of a resource to mine uh, in terms of energy usage. So um, if you can find a sustainable green way of doing it, um, that, that would be great. But I believe it's very power heavy. So solar would work. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, it's very, it's not very green at the moment. Thank you. Hope that answers your question, Billy. Um, Shaman wants to know, with an offshore portfolio, for example, if you have shares with WebTrader, is it wise to have a separate will in addition to your local one? Uh, you both specialize in holistic planning, so I'm sure this is something that you have to do all the time. Dawn, would you like yeah. to answer that first? Um, it's going to depend on the jurisdiction of the, the trading platform um, and the rules that apply there. So. Um, if you if you don't have a will, for for example, say your trading platform is in Luxembourg or 
maybe it's Ireland, doesn't matter where it is, right? Each of those will, will have um, requirements. If you don't have a will there, all that happens is it becomes intestate. And that is not a train smash unless it's, you, you know, your the whole life savings that your family is going to live on should you die prematurely, right? So what, what would happen is the executor would wind up the estate here, would close the close the will, it would then get sent to, say, Isle of Man, Man Guernsey, Jersey, wherever it is, that do require separate wills, right, that need to be lodged and they need to have a probate officer. So it would go there, a probate officer would get appointed, um, they would wind it up, close it and, and send it back here. So it, it just means a delay, you know, because if a will does exist, say, in, in Guernsey, which who I know requires a separate will, um, then the, the two estates can be wound up at the same time. So the more offshore assets you have, the more complex it can get. Jonathan, how do you manage all of this with your clients and their wills? Do you have to have different advisors in different jurisdictions or is there one person that can sort of have full oversight of everything? Yeah, you, you can have have an advice. You can have separate advisors in different jurisdictions if you like, um, but it's not necessary. Um, it can can be managed by one advisor um, that's got the, the the knowledge to do that. So yeah, I think it's very important if you've got a a large you know a large asset base all with assets all over the world. It's important that you have. Um, that you look at your estate planning very carefully to make sure that you don't miss something in terms of having the right will in the right jurisdiction. Um, because as Dawn mentioned, it can just add some serious delays in terms of uh, trying to wind up the estate if you don't have all of those things in place. Um, and it's also important to just uh, look at sort of probate and citus uh, taxes that are applicable to those different jurisdictions. Um, yeah, so it's important that your financial planner has knowledge of uh, of those international jurisdictions when putting financial plans together for you. Thank you. And um, Peter wants to know, currently I have a living annuity at Alan Gray. What advantage is there to moving and will it cost me money to move? I th you know, it, it's how long is a piece of string? One, it won't cost him money to move. Probably okay. it, it's Alan Gray. Likely it, it won't. It's a Section 36 transfer. Wouldn't cost him money to move. Um, the the only advantages um, would be in terms of the you know the funds that it and and the structure of, of the portfolio. That um, you know perhaps you have um, perhaps lower fees, uh, better performing, more aligned to the income that you're going to be putting out of a living annuity. Um, you know I think that's one very important consideration um, is, you know, what income is required and how is it being produced, you know, is, um, you know, they're, they're, I, I think it, it boils down to um, having a decent planner. You know, if you've got a decent planner, it actually doesn't matter where the, the living annuity is. And if the live, you know, because even on Alan Gray, you can probably find funds that are, are better suited to the living annuity if they're, you know, if he's, he's not happy with them. It, it, it just really, at the end of the day, you want somebody who will work with you um, and talk through the reservations that you have and see if those reservations can be fixed because a really good planner, you know, won't break something um, if they can fix it. So if it can be fixed on the, you know, Alan Gray platform, a, a good planner would fix it on the Alan Gray platform. Um, and 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 not just move it just for no reason. It, it's just it's the tide brokers. Sorry, any of you out there, tide brokers, <laughs> but um, you know that say, yeah, I, sure I can help you, but it has to be liberty, liberty or liberty, maybe stand lib as well. 
you know sorry but you know that that's essentially the the issue when it comes to to type you need an independent financial advisor to give you advice can this be fixed because an independent financial advisor can probably look after it for you on the Alan Gray platform and don't, you don't have to move it thanks Jonathan you're nodding there do you have anything to add to that no, I completely agree. Uh, you, the Section 30 transfer from Alan Gray to any of the other platforms won't cost you anything. It's completely, uh, you can do that. Um, but as Dawn mentioned, there's probably whatever the underlying causes that's that's one, that's making you want to move, uh, there's probably something else that might be there that, that could be fixed on that Alan Gray platform um, that, that, could, that could solve your issue. But yeah, moving it from one platform to another doesn't cost you unless it's linked to one of those sort of older style sort of products where where it's the, the standards or the liberties or whatever it might be, um, then it might cost you a penalty to move it. The other thing to also just be mindful of at the moment, um, so some of the platforms are hitting their sort of offshore capacity constraints. Um, so I don't know if that's something that the, the listener might be referring to. On the Alan Gray platform uh, at the moment, so this would be a new living annuity, it's not necessarily one that's already on the platform, um, you can only have 60% offshore capacity within your living annuity. Um, so there are other platforms that have still have their full 100% capacity available. Um, so for example, yeah, you know, you could move then to another platform that's got that sort of 100% capacity if that's something that you're looking for. So, um, but as I said, it's probably an underlying something that that's that's concerning your listener as opposed to the the moving it. The moving it can be done quite easily and and cost free. And before we move to the next question, just on the subject of that offshore capacity, do you think that's going to change uh, in the budget in February? Do you think that will be eased? So meaning that you won't have to change to another platform if you want to take advantage of uh, a broader uh, opportunity to invest offshore through the living annuity? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not, to be honest, I'm not actually sure what if that's going to, to happen in this budget. I, I would probably, I have my doubts. I think there's these offshore capacity uh, when these these asset managers hit their capacity, that's something that um, you know it's going to take a bit of time for them to to fix that in terms of you know uh, changing their sort of uh, capacity, the constraints that they've got. So I don't think it's going to be done uh, within the budget environment, but but it could be. Uh, I'm not sure that that could be something that we could look out for. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Ian has a very broad question. How do you think COVID will affect offshore investments in the next few years? So, um, quite yeah, quite a big question. Dawn, what, how are you factoring COVID into your uh, longer term planning for your offshore investments? Um, I think there's going to be more constraints here than, than, I mean, you know, Africa has, you know, no vaccines. No, one, Mr. Anton Rupert, right? But, um, <laughs> On you know, whereas you know, is is <laughs> Israel is you know well on its way to getting everybody vaccinated, um, you know, and all around the world they're you know well on the track to sort of getting this herd immunity because really it's it's only when you can get free travel and this kind of thing and I mean at the moment tourism is dead. And tourism is probably going to be dead the whole of this year, right? Um, in in this country and all the related related industries and uh, you know that that's before we even talk about being sh shooting ourselves in the foot with alcohol prohibitions and stupid things like that but um you know um i i think um once vaccinations take hold um 
you know things are going to start getting really really back to normal um and and once there's broad acceptance it becomes a bit of a snowball effect you still got people who are reluctant um to to take the vaccine but as they see more and more people taking it it'll be a snowball effect and they'll probably during the course of the year get up to sort of 80 percent kind of thing and, and have herd immunity africa is going to be a long way away from that and it's going to be much more difficult for us to to get our economy going you know without having that sort of uh, herd immunity so jonathan how have you restructured your portfolios or how has your advice changed in the light of COVID? Yeah, I mean, we, we've just sort of stuck to the principles of just having, you know, diversified portfolios, uh, you know, across the board, um, making sure that we're not trying to make calls in terms of one direction or the other, um, because it is just so difficult um, to, to try and make these calls with a, with a long-term sort of outlook. So I think it's important that you just stick to principles and, and just have diversified portfolios, you know, having healthy offshore exposure, um, and, and, you know, making sure that if you're investing in the local environment that you're using the right sort of vehicles. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's too difficult to call which way we think the, the markets are going to go in terms of how COVID's looking. I think with the vaccines on being rolled out, I think that's going to be extremely positive. Uh, but we need to get to that critical herd immunity level and when that's going to be, whether it's going to be this year or in the next two to three years, uh, nobody sort of knows. Um, so yeah, I think once we reach that, we'll have a lot of, lot more clarity in terms of where the, the environment's going. So I don't know if uh, Sanam Gracie has been on an aggressive uh, setting uh, strategy, but we have quite a few questions wanting to know what do you think of Sanam's Glacier? Dawn, do you use Glacier at all? Um, Are these the tired agents? Uh, no, they're not tied agents. You know, they're the they're the list portion of of Sunlum. Um, they were very early in the PSP bespoke space, um, along with Momentum, which you know, which was quite progressive. Now well, we're talking about thirteen or fourteen years ago, um, and you know, some of the sort of purchases in that that Sunlum made, I'm actually you know, in in the life space, I'm actually quite quite happy with. Um, and and all I can say is that. If you've got a list platform, Sunlam Glacier, Momentum Wealth is another one, Stanlib is another one. Um, these list platforms where you're more inclined to find independent financial advisors and not not tied agents. Um, you know, you're going to be able to on any of those decent list platforms put together the, a, a portfolio on any of them, right? Um, that is as as good as each other. You know, it's become. You know, you you'll find Alan Gray. You can put Alan Gray on Sunlam Glacier. You can put Coronation on Sunlam Glacier, and all of them, you know, have access to all these different, um, all these different funds. So, you know, um, I don't, uh, you know, I, I am I'm more inclined to use Investec for a number of reasons, and 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 the most compelling reason from my perspective is the IT interface. I, I like being able to do things myself. I like being able to draw up what ifs. I like being able to do my own quotes and all of those kind of things and Investec. And I also don't want to necessarily, every time one of the others brings out a new, oh, come and spend another six hours learning how to use our system. Um, so, you know, from, from an advisor's perspective, um, you know, when all the lists are much of a muchness, you know, maybe some of their, their platform fees might change from from time to time that um 
I can give my clients better service when I really understand the interface and I can make quick changes to a client's portfolio. So I, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with Sunland Glacier. It's just not my platform of preference right now. Jonathan, what's your view on yeah. Glacier? Yeah, so so we use, as, as Dawn mentioned, we use multiple platforms for our clients. So, uh, and Glacier is one of them that we make use of. Um, and yeah, very, you know, very happy with it. It's a, it's a good platform. Uh, got great fund availability. So as Dawn mentioned, you can get access to any of the top asset managers on, on that platform. Um, their IT, yeah, you know, we find their IT interface, you know, easy to use. Uh, their reporting's great. So, so yeah, we, we make use of them along with the, with, along with 91 and Investec and Alan Gray. Um, we think that Glacier platform's right up there with them. It's, it's well costed. Um, and it's a, it's a very, uh, user friendly platform to make use of. Yeah. Thank you. Now back to global markets. We've had a lot of questions in this week as well about the ARC fund headed by Kathy Wood, obviously with these great returns. And um, so what is your view on investing in global tech in general? Dawn, do you think it's very hot and frothy now? Do you think people should be pulling back? We also had a warning this week from uh, Jeremy Grantham that this could be the worst bubble in living memory. Uh, and people could get really sort of uh, scarred financially. So what is your view now? Do you think it's time to sort of take some money off the table, reschedule around that area or re reallocate? You know, I, 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 I think so. You know, I think um, the, the time has come to kind of, um, you know, take some profits. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not saying get out of them completely. But, you know, when, when you've got an offshore portfolio, you know, you, you want it to be on the growth curve. Unless you're looking for, a, you know, a cash cow that produces lots of dividends, then you're buying a completely different set. But those are usually more mature companies. And in South Africa, you're looking at the sort of, um, you know, the Billitons, the Anglos and, and this kind of thing with their, with their high dividend cash curve. But they're not sort of aggressively growing up that um that growth curve. So all the all the techs have gone, you know, screaming up that that tech curve, um, and you just have to sort of and and I mean that was a very clear reason for it. I mean, it was was COVID, everyone staying at home and and doing that kind of thing. And um, you know, for everyone that's gone up, you know, obviously huge damage to you know bricks and mortar retail and that kind of thing. You know, when one loses, another one gains, kind of thing. But um, you know, I do think that um, it's probably been blown out of the water a little bit. You know, obviously part of the part of the appeal of Tesla has been, you know, their self-driving cars and the tech aspect and and, and everything like that. So um, I do think that uh, you know maybe for the moment, um, you know, tech has kind of like you know probably going to start leveling out. Um, but you know, if you if you if you plot uh, Wall Street against the Nasdaq, um, you know all this massive growth over the over last year came from the Nasdaq. It came basically from six shares, right? Um, so that is massive share concentration. So I would say it's time to diversify. Look, we've been quite interested in the Russell 2000. You know, those are the smaller tech. Um, you know, the um, in America, it's so the smaller cap shares and that kind of thing, which have been doing somewhat better than than these these big tech and that kind of thing. But uh, you know, this whole Robin Hood thing um, has given me pause. I actually have spent the better part part of the last day actually trying to wrap my head around the long term implications because that worries me. Mm. 
Jonathan, what do you have to add to that? I remember one of your colleagues, Debbie, was with us uh, towards the end of last year and mentioned exactly what Dawn said, that it's actually not uh, the S&P 500. It's just a, a handful of stocks that is powering up returns. So uh, how yeah. are you factoring this into your asset allocation? Yeah, so we, we're finding, as we mentioned with the with the local asset managers, that it's been a very sort of a, a tight rope that the asset managers have had to walk in, that they've had to have NASPERS and have the, 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 they've got the miners and the platinum stocks and try and avoid the sassels and the sign-offs. Similarly, on the international front, it's also been very narrow in the sense that if you've had exposure to Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, your portfolios have done really well. So it's been, you know, there's been five or six, maybe call it 10 stocks, including Tesla and, and the likes of them that have, that have generated the, the phenomenal returns in that space. Um, so it does get a little bit worrying when those stocks are controlling a massive part of the market. Um, so I think that it is something to be mindful of and it is something that we're looking at. Um, so, you know, when we look at the international space, we're always quite happy to have, um, you know, sort of a blend of index trackers and, as well as active management. Um, the index trackers are always useful to give you exposure to those big tech stocks because they're just such big players part of the industry, um, whereas the active managers can then start to look for some active sort of alpha within the portfolios, try and add value to the portfolios um, by looking at perhaps looking at some of the value stocks. So it's kind of a, a debate about value versus growth. And, and over the last sort of five years, the growth stocks have just done super well. Um, but now it might be a time for the value stocks to start coming up. I and, think I've, and yes. Mm, sorry, yeah. No, sorry, I'm not sure if I've lost you or you've lost me. The 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 line was bad there. Uh, sorry, uh, am I back? Yeah, I'm not sure what you guys got. Yes, yes. I was just saying that. Yeah, the diff the difficulty is the the debate around the value versus the growth stocks. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it's it's important to to have exposure to both sort of sides of it. Um, you know, using the the passive sort of index trackers. Uh, to make use of to get access to the growth stocks, um, but then also having a blend of active management, which are looking for the value stocks uh, to try and unlock some of that value, which could be there um, if if there is any sort of concern with those growth growth stocks. And hopefully they'll do a better job than the South African ones that you showed us earlier. Let's hope. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we've got time for two more questions, and there's a question here from Avril about an anticipated wealth tax coming. How will it be implemented? So obviously that's a bit of guesswork at the moment, but Dawn, do you get a sense that we will have a wealth tax, and if so, how do you think it will impact on people? You know, well, wealth taxes are all over the world it haven't worked. You know, the the I think the one place that still has it in place is France. Um, I think Holland, Netherlands, also also has it in place. It, it's very expensive to actually administer and actually extract that that money um, fr from people. Uh, you know, um, and you know, because I mean, this whole notion of wealth tax isn't new. I mean, it's it, it's been coming up for the last fifteen years at least. Um, you know, and um, every time they have a look at, they say, look, it's just going to be far too expensive to. To administer because um, you know wealth tax then starts to tap into um, you know business owners and entrepreneurs and 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 those kind of things. Whereas you know just sticking the um, you know uh, 
tax rate up to say 50% um, and it comes off PAYE and, and you know, it's much, much easier to administer. Um, and, you know, I, I think there's probably a fairly good correlation um, between the two. But, um, you know, the, the one thing that um, the, the government needs to avoid is killing the goose that lays the golden egg. Because when you saw sort of massive increases in wealth taxes and things come into the UK, all that happened was those entrepreneurs just left, right? Went and lived on the Isle of Man or Guernsey or Jersey or, or whatever it is. And, you know, so the, the really wealthy just say to hell with this and leave. So, you know, I just think that there's smarter ways of, um, you know, getting getting more money. I mean, for a start, for heaven's sake, you're losing one and a half billion rand a year by no alcohol. Look, that's more probably they'd get in one month than they'd get in a year from wealth tax. And Jonathan, is there a way you can avoid a wealth tax? You know, we used to hear a lot about tax exiles and people sort of living in different jurisdictions to sort of get around the various taxes. Is that still an option for wealthier people? Yeah, so I think it does. I mean, there, there are jurisdictions where one could work and, and live and earn, a, earn an income um, in different jurisdictions. So that, that is an option. Um, but there, there's a whole lot of consequences that come with that as a South African. So if you do decide to give up your South, South African sort of residency or tax resident status, um, there's a sort of a knock-on impact of that, which you need to be mindful of. So um, it is an option, but it, it could potentially be quite an expensive option if you wanted to uproot your sort of business and your life to a, to a tax-free jurisdiction. Setting something up in one of those jurisdictions, uh, yeah, that, that is definitely an option that could be done. Um, and just to add to sort of what Dawn was saying is that I think the South African Revenue Service has have some streams of tax options and revenue that they can still look to to sort of, uh, you know, tax the base. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily going to be in the form of a wealth tax. Um, you know, we already have capital gains tax and estate duty tax. So those are those are two levers that they, they might look to pull on those rather before uh, implementing a wealth tax. So we've seen capital gains tax going up over the last couple of years. Um, so that could be something that they could look to to increase, which would be a lot easier um, and probably a lot more efficient for them to generate some additional tax as opposed to implementing a, a new wealth tax structure. Um, yeah, that would just be my sort of thoughts on that. Huh? Okay, well, thank you very much for joining us this week, Jonathan. Jonathan is from Netto Invest in Cape Town. And thank you very much to Dawn Riddler as well of Karinga Wealth Ecology, uh, which is based in Johannesburg. And thank you to everybody for joining us at the webinar. And do please send your questions through and suggestions for future topics. There's my email address. So thank you very much and have a good weekend. Thanks, Jackie. Thanks, Dawn. Bye, everyone. Bye, Bye, Jonathan. Bye. Bye.